Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. For almost seven centuries, two powers dominated the region we now call the Middle East, Rome and Persia. From the West, the Roman Republic, later the Roman Empire, later the Byzantine Empire. From the East, the Parthian Empire, later replaced by the Sassanian Empire. The two ancient superpowers spent centuries fighting for influence, paying each other off, encouraging proxy fights in their neighbors, and seizing opportunities while the other was distracted with internal strife. Relationship culminates in an almost three-decade-long war that so exhausts the two powers that they both end up getting overrun by the Arabs years later. Adrian Goldsworthy gives us a detailed account of this long history in his recent book, Rome and Persia, The 700-Year Rivalry, starting from the alleged first contact in 92 BC through to the collapse of Persia in the 7th century. The two of us are going to try our best to talk about this long history in our interview today. Adrian is an award-winning historian of the classical world. He is the author of numerous books about ancient Rome, including Hadrian's Wall, Caesar, How Rome Fell, Pax Romana, and Augustus. So, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, maybe to start, I kind of, I think a lot of people have a familiar, a, a familiarity with Rome, be it the Roman Republic, Roman Empire. They probably have less familiarity um, with Persia. Um, and maybe we can start with Parthia specifically. You know, what exactly was the the Parthian Empire, and where did this political entity come from? Well, thank you for having me. It's um, it's complicated in many ways because although they go down in history as the Parthians, and Parthia was a, a region of northern Iran, had been part of the old Persian Empire. Actually, the leaders of the Parthians come from outside, and they end up taking the name. But they are they're a power that's predominantly Iranian that develops, and as again the big world changing event has occurred in the the three thirties three twenties BC when Alexander the Great has started out in Macedonia, northern Greece, crossed to what's now Turkey, and then ended up carving his way through to what's now Pakistan and destroying or at least taking over the old Persian Empire. Alexander then dies without a, an heir, or at least a viable heir, who can hold on to his empire. So that breaks up into with civil wars between his generals. So you end up with Ptolemy in based in Egypt, the ancestor of the famous Cleopatra. You end up with the Macedonian kingdom. You end up with the Seleucids, who have most of the eastern bit. But as their power declines in the second century BC, groups like the Parthians appear and grab more and more of this this former Macedonian Greek empire that before that had been the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the Parthians are the most successful. There are lots of competitors that appear and carve out various sized kingdoms for, for themselves and fight each other. The Parthians are the big winners. They're the ones who take most of the territory stretching over into Syria, the Euphrates, Tigris Valleys, that area, sometimes even further to the west and all the way to the east to Afghanistan, very occasionally to, to northern India, but rarely that, up to the Caspian Sea, down to the Gulf. So it's it's a big, big area, but they they don't leave their own version of events. They don't write down histories that have been preserved. And even more unfortunate for them, they're succeeded by the Sasanian dynasty who do their best to minimize their predecessors in the historical record. So even the, the sort of medieval tradition we have in Arabic sources, the Parthians get reduced to about half the time they actually lasted. 
But this is a successful dynasty that controls this big empire for over four centuries. So it is huge. It's highly successful, but we don't know much about them. And there's so much we'd love to know that's that's lost. The, the records for them aren't great. And and I expect that's a that's a common problem kind of throughout this book, right? And that um, there's obviously a lot of sources from about the Romans, all flawed. Um, a lot of personal gripes seem to be <laughs> portrayed in these sources. But there's but, there, but there's a lot more of them. And then it seems like for for Persia, whether it's Parthia or the Sasanians, there's 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 not very much at all. It's it's extraordinarily difficult, and this is true of Greek and Roman history in general. In that, it's the Greeks, it's the Romans who write things down, and because Greco-Roman culture has such an influence on the development of the Catholic Church, that then means that when you have the early medieval period, the Dark Ages, writings lost. What's preserved tends to be the Greek and Roman tradition and certain parts of it. So we simply don't get. Um, ancient authors will refer to, oh, I found this in the, the Persian royal archives, or this is the story the Persians tell, but we almost never get. There are a few fragments that appear in Armenian tradition. There's some that makes it as far as the the Arabic tradition in the, the medieval period, but overwhelmingly, this is a story you can only tell from the Roman point of view. And that's obviously a major problem for any historian, particularly one looking at rivalry, looking at conflict, because obviously, even when those sources are trying to be as fair as they possibly can be, and that's you know something you can't guarantee, an awful lot of them are very, very biased and very consciously so, um, even then, we never know how much they really understood about the other person's point of view and mm-hmm. the other side. So the best you can really do is obviously make the very most you can of what little we have. And at least compared to, say, you look at the history of the peoples of, say, Britain, you know, um, occupied by the Romans for three and a half centuries, we never hear what it felt like to be invaded by the Romans, to be occupied by the Romans. And then what did you really remember 350 years later when Roman rule collapsed? You don't get that. You, you're completely, for most of the Roman Empire, you never get a sense of anybody else's point of view. Mm-hmm. The big exception within the empire is Judea, where you have the Jewish tradition. And that, to some extent, helps you because you've also got big Jewish communities in Babylonia. Um, So they sometimes preserve some stories of people who are outside the Roman Empire looking towards it rather than inside looking out. Mm -hmm. But it's still overwhelmingly the Greek and Roman perspective. So coming as a historian, the best you can do, and my aim in the book has been to admit this and be open about it, but to try and ask the same questions of both sides and both empires to try and treat them in the same way, treat the evidence you have with equal skepticism. So, you know, it is tempting. There's this wonderful triumphal monument from a Sasanian Persian king, the I, in the third century BC, that talks about his victories over the Romans. And there are several sculptures, rock reliefs that show him defeating two or sometimes three Roman emperors in one way or another, one of them sort of trampling under his horse, one of them begging for forgiveness, one of them being held prisoner. And he he did take the Emperor Valerian prisoner, the only Roman ever captured, the only Roman emperor ever captured by a foreign power. But you can't believe his propaganda any more than you could believe the propaganda of Caesar Augustus or any other Roman, because it's his. This is a, a royal decree saying how great I am. Aren't you people in my kingdom lucky to have me as your ruler? Because I'm marvelous. And obviously, we were always in the right and so on. But 
it's wonderful to have that. But as I say, you've got to come with exactly the same level of suspicion and skepticism as you would if the source came from your more familiar Roman perspective. Um, so I, I studied a lot of international relations when I was in um, undergrad and also in grad school. So um, I'm going to ask a couple of, <laughs> I guess, IR-ish questions. Um you know what? What's the the term when you use it? International system. Although I know that's a huge anachronism. Um, but like, what actually? How were kind of polities structured during this time? How did different political entities relate to each other? Not just kind of Rome and Persia, but all these other small kingdoms that are vassals of Rome or Persia, or allied with one or the other, or subordinate to. But kind of, how was this whole system structured? It's. Um interesting because obviously the big difference with the Parthians and the Persians is that they are far larger than anything else that's out there in in the Roman world. Yes, the Romans dimly know of the existence of China, just as the Chinese dimly know of the existence of Rome. But the distances are so great that whilst there is, you know, some goods do travel from one to the other and some people, there's no real meaningful political contact and, and never can be. Otherwise, the rest of the Roman Empire is surrounded by small kingdoms, tribal peoples, relatively low-level communities that do never unite. You know, Carthage, the great rival in the Mediterranean, has been destroyed in 146 BC, so that's gone. The Greek kingdoms have gone. So you're in the Roman world, there is a profound difference, which they eventually realize. It takes them a while to sort of understand, but... When they're dealing with the Parthians, when they're dealing with the Sasanians, they're dealing with a power that is far more, far stronger and more sophisticated than anybody else they have to, to deal with at any other time, which has advantages and disadvantages. There is a tendency with uh, Roman relations on other frontiers where you're dealing with tribal peoples, with quite complicated rivalries within the politics, even of individual tribes and clans and all this sort of thing that... We see mainly from the Roman sources, uh, because the archaeology doesn't tend to follow such neat patterns, and we're probably seeing a misunderstood, garbled version of it. This is how the Romans appreciate it, and they probably get lots of things wrong. But the Roman Empire is this empire of cities wherever possible, and communities that tend to govern themselves with the sort of Romans providing an arbitration higher up, an administration higher up, military protection organizing taxation trade, this sort of thing. But it's it's fairly sort of low-key. Most of your day-to-day affairs are run by your own traditions, by your own people, by your own laws, um, even though a growing number of people are becoming Roman citizens and there's that, that change. When you look at the Parthian and the Persian Empire, there's, there's a key in the title of the monarch who is king of kings. And whereas you have the Roman emperor, and you know that's a modern term, um, because the, the, you have this imperial system that has a monarch that's pretending it isn't a monarchy for centuries, and there's, there's everybody sort of buying into this this self deception that he's just the you know first among equals, the first magistrate of the state, the first citizen, even though well he does control the army and you know <laughs> we can't get rid of him other than by rebellion if we want to. Uh, um, but you're king of kings in the Parthian and Persian equivalent, which means that there are plenty of other monarchs within your empire, and some of them are quite powerful. They control quite large areas. Others are much more local. There's there's sort of petty kings beneath those as well. And it is just physically too large an area with the technology, the communications of the time to have 
a very close centralized government that supervises every aspect of day-to-day life. That's not possible for the Romans. It certainly isn't possible for the Parthians and Sasanians. So again, there's a lot of devolved power. There's a lot of regional power, local authorities. And that then extends. It's one of the issues why there'll be this friction over kingdoms, particularly in communities that are neighboring on both of the empires, because you can't, you know, it, it's seeing them as client states and thing is, is too simplistic. They are everywhere has to run its own affairs to a great degree. And then the king of kings or the Roman emperor comes in and makes certain demands or supervises or more often than not is actually pulled into that area and intervening by appeals from leaders within it because they're having a dispute and it's either go to war or we we seek arbitration from a higher authority. So uh, the Roman Empire is is more organized partly because it's more densely populated as well. Um, because again, the other big difference is that the, the Parthian and Persian Empire includes a far greater variation in climatic zones, uh, landscapes, the possibilities of agriculture, of pastoral economies. And we don't have, well, we don't have precise figures for the Roman Empire. We're guessing at a the sort of the common scholarly estimate for the Roman Empire in the early second century AD is about a population of 60 million. I suspect that's too low, but you're probably not going much more than 70 million, maybe a bit more than that. Um, The population of the Parthian Empire is even harder to estimate, but is certainly much smaller by several orders of magnitude. You know, 10 million is probably quite generous. Um, And there are large areas that simply can't support a big population. Um, essentially, you've, you know, looking at it in the most simple way, you've got more more land in the Roman Empire where it rains a lot uh, than you have in in the Eastern Empire. So there are there are profound differences like that that will then influence what's possible politically. Then you have the traditions that have also, um, you know, the Parthians take over kingdoms and regions that have been ruled before them by the Seleucids, before the Seleucids by the Achaemenid Persians, before that by the succession of other empires that have risen and fallen in the wider area, and yet still maintain, as in Babylonia, say they will still maintain their own religion, their own culture, their own beliefs, their own means of record keeping. So you're, there are lots of levels of people's sense of identity of their political organization that make it very complex. Um, you know, you, you mentioned getting that one or the other would often get pulled into these debates in, in, in smaller kingdoms around. Um, so I want to ask about Armenia, like Armenia seems to constantly be a source of tension, of conflict. There's always problems happening in Armenia. Why Armenia? What, what is it about this part of the world that made it such a, why is it constantly sparking conflict and and fights between Rome and Persia? It's partly because it ends up on the borders of both. So it's it's within it's considered to be within the sphere of influence of each empire, and then it's a question of just how far they feel they've got to assert their their dominance and how far they can let the other do it. One of the big problems with Armenia is that much of it is very rugged territory and. It's a hard area for the kings of Armenia to control because you have traditions of strong local aristocrats that in many cases have strongholds that are well protected both by 
built fortifications, but also naturally as well. They're in the high valleys. So it's very hard to go and enforce your will on a nobility that's always pretty fractious anyway, um, without major force. And that's a major effort. And while you're doing that, well, what's happening elsewhere in the kingdom? So Armenia is difficult to control for the Armenians. And one of the problems is that because there is so much competition to be ruler of Armenia, you will then have different factions. And this is a pattern, you see it again and again in Roman expansion, because that's well documented. But it's also there in Parthian and Sasanian expansion. Very often when an imperial power starts to develop a presence in a region, then local leaders have a simple choice to make. You either see this this incursion as hostile and something to be resisted, or you think, can I actually use this power as an ally to me that will allow me to prevail in long-term rivalries I've got with my neighbors, with the 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 ruler of that that valley over there, with different factions within the royal family. Can I make this incur the this 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 intruder, this person who's come into the area, can they be a, a useful friend? And if I make them a useful friend, that means I can do well. But if I don't and if I choose to either be neutral or hostile to them, will one of my rivals form an alliance with the Parthians or the Romans or whoever and use their their influence, their money, perhaps their military might to gain an advantage over me? So it's it's always far too simplistic to see these as just client areas and this, if they're controlled. And you will find older accounts that will describe Armenia as in this period pro-Roman or pro-Parthian it's never that simple. There are some leaders who choose at the time to adopt one of those stances, but they're almost never in sole control of the area. And certainly in the longer term, they might decide, well, it's been useful to have the Romans as an ally for the last few years, but maybe now I'm a bit stronger. I need to show to everybody else that I'm not just powerful because the Romans have backed me, but I'm powerful in my own right. Therefore, you need to to um, you know support me and not oppose me. So you get these assertions of independence. You'll also find you know, one of the biggest periods that's, that's best described of rivalry between the Romans and the Parthians over Armenia occurs in Nero's reign. And it's mm. sporadic, and there is there is a, probably a little bit of fighting, and there culminates in one Roman defeat and surrender where the Romans are coming up against a predominantly Parthian army. But in the main, it's one side fighting against allies of the other, each trying to back local leaders, and it's a question of who will be the ruler of Armenia, and if they are ruler, can they stay ruler for very long, or do they get overthrown? But one of the wars starts because you've had success, the king of Armenia has been backed by the Romans, he's doing well, he decides to go and attack a neighboring kingdom, which then appeals to the Parthians and say, well, I'm part of, you know, I'm one of the, the kings of whom you are king, you need to protect me, you need to help me. It is clearly, you know, in the, the source, it's not something the Romans wanted. This is an initiative by a local leader. And this is one of the problems. And it, it's it's exacerbated by the distances involved and the the um, the time simply for information to, to pass, let alone armies or, or even embassies. But these smaller players are, they have ambitions and agendas of their own. They are not simply puppets of the great powers. There is always a tendency when, when you see these two superpowers to assume that everybody else is basically playing the game by the rules set by the superpowers. And that's clearly not the case at, 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 almost, at almost any time. They are, in because it's partly because they always realize, well, if I upset the Romans, I can always become more friendly to the Parthians or vice versa. 
You know, there are other options. And even if I do something the Romans or the Parthians don't like, they might not do anything about it. Because plenty of these local kings will fight their wars, will exploit their neighbours, will murder their relatives, or will stage a coup and take over power there against someone who's been approved by the superpowers. They always seem to feel that there is a realistic chance that they can still get recognition. This doesn't have to be a deal breaker. The fact that you've overthrown a king appointed by the Romans doesn't mean the Romans might not actually say, well, fair enough, you're willing to be a good friend to us. We'll accept you as an ally as well. So the the politics are very complicated. We get glimpses of it tending to focus on particular periods, but the pattern seems to be there century after century. I, I was going to say, I mean, to I know it's not a great comparison, but this sounds a lot like the Cold War. You know, like middle countries playing different superpowers against each other, superpowers getting involved in these in these conflicts, often to their detriment. It, it is, and it, it's because you can't, that's the thing, they can't control these groups. And ultimately, there's no major ideological difference between the Romans and the, the Parthians or the Sasanians. And even when you have, to some extent, when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, you've got the antagonism between the, the Christian tradition and the Zoroastrian tradition, wars don't tend to be fought over religion. It might be an element that exacerbates it, but the, the Romans aren't pushing a particular way of living, a particular political or moral ideology, and nor are the, the Parthians or the Persians. So it's not even as if when somebody decides, yes, I'm a friend of the King of Kings, there at Tessiphon in you know the, the Parthians, he's backed me, or of this particular Caesar at Rome. They don't expect very much of you, and they don't expect you to live away or to do certain things. So there's even less of, or at least in the Cold War, you know, there was a perception of, well, there was a, a Western style of living, you had the, the communist alternative, but even then you had so many different variations of that as to how they're doing it. So, you, you, but you lack that in this ancient period. There isn't that ideological basis to this rivalry. It is pure and simple, pure and simply about power, about dominance. And there is an awful lot of prestige in all of this, as there is in much of ancient history. And it, it's there in the modern era as well, obviously, but it, it's it's particularly pronounced in ancient cultures where if you are perceived to be strong, then people tend to be wary of you. They tend to want you to be their friend. They tend to be nicer to you. And if you do express disapproval of something they're doing, they might react to that. They might actually back down. And you're certainly at the, the most basic level. If you're perceived to be weak and vulnerable, you will be attacked. And that's true at a local level. So that so much of the warfare in the ancient world is, is not sort of Clausewitzian a war fought for political purpose. It's rape. It's about profit. It's about, in part, it's asserting your dominance because it shows that I am strong, I am tough, I can raid my neighbors, they can't raid me. So therefore, watch out, be careful, you know, don't don't tread on me sort of thing. And don't, and, don't, hmm. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's a good segue to another one of my questions, which is, you know, how how is war like actually conducted during this period? I mean, as you know, it's, it's, it's not a total war scenario. It sounds like a lot of these armies, uh, while well, certainly big by, by, their standards are probably not that big by ours. Um, it's a lot of raiding, a lot of plundering. But but like what how how is war conducted, you know, during this time period? It's it's quite different between the two empires. They come from different 
military traditions. Though actually, over time, they get more and more alike. And particularly in the Sasanian and later Roman period, by the end, it's very hard to tell the armies apart. There is a Roman tradition, and it's one of the reasons why the Romans have created this big empire from being merely one Latin city in Latium in Italy to becoming an Italian power, to becoming a Mediterranean power, to dominating Western Europe, North Africa, and um, you know the Near East. They've done this because the Romans have come close to fighting a total war. The Romans have taken war very personally in that Many states will fight wars regularly and they'll fight them with the same neighbors time and time again. And you conclude, you declare victory because the enemy's admitted that they've been beaten. You form a treaty, they pay you some money, they behave in a suitably humble manner, maybe they cede you some territory, but you don't destroy them. Partly because that's rarely possible. The Romans change the rules because they don't give in. So if you look, this is before our period, but if you look at the war with Carthage, particularly the war with Hannibal, in the first three years of that war, a third of the Roman Senate is killed and a commensurate proportion of the wider population are almost as high. Now, these are appalling casualties, far greater than the ones that Alexander the Great inflicts on the Persians, at which point the Persians say, right, fair enough, you're in charge, You know, have the empire sort of thing. <laughs> we've, we've been beaten. The Romans don't do that. The Romans don't give in. They're very peculiar in that respect. They keep on fighting. They keep on raising new armies. And eventually, they don't destroy Carthage in that war. But in 146, just over 50 years later, they go back and say, we are not going to allow you even the possibility of getting strong again and becoming a rival. So politically, you are destroyed. You know, the site is leveled as a political entity. Carthage ceases to be. Now, in most cases, Roman wars end with absorption. But the Roman genius, I suppose, is, is almost the, the best word for it. The, the unique um, skill they had compared almost to any other empire in history is that they go out and they conquer and they make people Roman. And the Romans have a completely different attitude to citizenship of anyone else out there in the ancient world in that they, you know, they free a slave, he becomes a citizen. They, your enemies you've defeated in one generation become allies, then eventually, at least their aristocracy, and often part of the wider population, will become Roman citizens. So that by the time you get to the second century AD into the third, you'll have Roman emperors who've come from Spain, who've come from Africa, who've come from Syria. Yeah, it doesn't matter. the Arab, right? I think it's one of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, Septimius Severus from Leptis Magra in, in North Africa. And they're Romans, because that's all that matters, because it's a, it's a legal status, it's a cultural identity. It's the sort of the, it's, it's to some extent like the melting pot of the USA, it's just that you go abroad and do that. And you turn people into, and areas like Britain, when the Romans go, do appear to have no memory at all of an existence that predates the Roman arrival. And it's the striking thing that whereas you contrast, you look at the, the 20th century, um, and the, the collapse of the European empires post-Second World War, you know, the winds of change, all this sort of stuff. There was a great sense of nationalist desire in so many of these regions. That's not there when the Western, Western Roman Empire falls apart. By the 5th century, nobody wants to be a Gaul or a Spaniard. They just want a Roman emperor who looks after their problems and protects them. They think of themselves as Roman. And you, you know, again, Britain was one of the, the last provinces added to the Roman Empire, they are still here for over 350 years. So that's, you know, a vast amount of time. And they have, it has become, Rome is perceived as essentially 
a civilized existence, a civilized state. There isn't really an alternative to it. And so the Romans have done this. So the Romans have done this over this wide area. They do their expansion slows down with the development of the imperial system, Caesar Augustus and so on, as successive emperors are less keen to expand Partly because they, you can see there's almost a sort of cost-benefit analysis where you have several cases in the first century and second century where authors talk about, well, you know, we could go here, but actually the cost of garrisoning the area would be so expensive that it wouldn't be covered by the taxes and profits we'd make from it. So let's not bother. Let's just sort of dominate from a distance. And even of turning people down who come and want to become part of the Roman Empire because they see that's an advantage. Well, we don't want you. You're not worth it. Something changes when they come up against the Parthians. So it's been a long-winded way to get there, but that's the, the point of this, this discussion. And that's, if you look at areas like Syria, you've got the city of Antioch that after Rome and perhaps after Alexandria is one of the biggest cities in the world. It's, it's founded by Antiochus, one of the Seleucid monarchs. But also you've got the city of Seleucia on the Tigris, which is again perhaps along with Alexandria and Antioch, these are mega cities far bigger than anything else. Now, most cities in the ancient world have a population in the tens of thousands if they're big. Rome has a population of at least a million by the end of the first century BC. Places like Antioch, Alexandria, um, Seleucia, you're talking hundreds of thousands. You know, they're that size. So they are, they're not as big as Rome, but they are far, far larger than anything else. Now, Seleucia is a Greek city, but it's always ruled by the Parthians and the Sasanians. Antioch is a Greek city. It's always ruled by the Romans, with you know the ex- occupied a couple of times for a matter of months by the, the Parthians and then the Seleucids, but not, not more than that. They're, they're, there's never any realistic... If you look at that area, stretching from the Mediterranean coast to the Tigris-Euphrates valleys, it's been Seleucid, it's been Greek for centuries before either the Parthians or the Romans arrive, you could actually look and think, well, that's naturally homogenous as an area. Why isn't this ruled by one of the two empires? And yet both seem content to split it down the middle. And nor is there a strong enough sense of the people living there that they want to be united. Because again, you've got this Greek tradition whereby your loyalty is not really to a kingdom so much as to your city. Bigger though that city might be, smaller that city might be. So you, yes, you are a Greek. Yes, you are part of this world. This is the language you speak, the culture you inhabit. That doesn't re- require any sort of political unity. But the difference is that the Romans, although they will steadily, they'll sort of nibble away at the Parthian Empire, and the Roman territory will expand during the course of the first and then particularly second century AD. It doesn't expand at anything like the pace it has before. There is no real concerted effort certainly after the 50s BC, and probably not even then, where the Romans sit down and say, okay, we've got this big rival, let's do what we did to Carthage, let's take it out. Let's, it's going to take years, it's going to take huge effort, but we, we know how to do this, we can do this, it will be worth it in the end, we will take them. They don't try, and nor do the Parthians after 41, 40 BC, they, they sweep up to the Mediterranean coast, they occupy Syria, but they're, they're thrown out in not much more than a, a year, 18 months. Um, they occupy Jerusalem. Subsequent attacks will always be, we'll go in, we'll raid, we'll extort money from the communities, but we'll go home. And the Sasanian pattern is exactly the same. They don't go looking to occupy territory permanently, to conquer territory, to take the Roman Empire. So they, 
they quite quickly from their first contact seem to establish this sense of we can't treat this other superpower as we've treated everybody else. Because again, the Parthians before them have expanded to create this big empire. You know, it didn't, didn't exist before they put it all together. They have done that by successfully attacking, conquering other groups. And in many cases, they've persuaded the local leaders to switch sides and join them and be loyal to them. Or whether it's civic leaders in somewhere like Seleucia, whether it's clan leaders in some of the, the territory in eastern Iran. You've convinced locals, you've convinced these sort of lesser kings that will be part of your um, empire that it's worth their while staying with you and accepting you. You do have, you know, you've got this tradition of conquest, and yet you come up against the Romans and you think, hmm, yeah, I don't think it's going to work this time. So they seem to have this ability to assess each other and think, no, we can't do what we've done before, at least not easily, and the effort might not be worth it. But also there's, I think there's an element where you know when you're dealing with the other empire that if you make an agreement with the emperor or the king of kings, it holds over a wide area. Yes, they might be treacherous. Yes, they might break it in the end. If you make an agreement with, say, a Parthian or Sasanian perspective, the clan leader of a nomadic group to the, the northeast, it only holds with him as long as he feels like it. It doesn't hold with all the other clan leaders. The same with the Romans when they're dealing with the tribal peoples beyond the Danube, beyond the Rhine, on most of their frontiers. A deal with one chieftain, one king doesn't even mean necessarily that that whole tribe will keep the peace. Will And very often rivals will choose to do the opposite to, to what their neighbors are doing. So diplomacy there is much more complicated, as is military intervention. You have to fight your opponent at their political level which sometimes means, and most of the time does mean, going down to fight small, quite small-scale campaigns with relatively small objectives against a community, a kingdom, a king, a chieftain, tribe, whatever it might be, and then repeating the process with all the other neighbours in the area through a mixture of diplomacy and force. In a sense, it's easier to deal with the other empire because, yes, they pose a much bigger military problem if, if they do get upset, but diplomatically, if you can sort things out, then it, that covers a much wider area. It's sort of easier to think of, okay, well, we've, we've got reasonable relations with the King of Kings, or we've got reasonable relations with the Roman Emperor. I don't have to worry about that. Usually, the ruler of either empire has a lot more, more pressing problems that might not be on quite the scale, but they're nevertheless things he has to deal with elsewhere in the empire. Because again, the border between the two empires is only a small part of their wider frontier uh, question and question on problems. So I wanted I want to jump right to the the end of this history, um, which is the the again the 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 thirty the almost three decade long war um, between the Byzantine Empire and and the Sasanian Empire, Heraclius, Khosrow the Second. It's a much bigger war, a much more I mean a, a much more seemingly. Uh, total war than than those preceding it and it leaves both sides so exhausted that the arabs come and basically beat both of them um but i guess what actually happens during this conflict and how does it set things up for the fall of persia and i guess the the rapid um shrinking of the of, of the byzantine empire it's it's one of those odd things that if you look from a a distance then there are quite substantial periods in First century, second century, less so in the third, but the latter part of the fourth, and most of the fifth century, where the two superpowers 
barely go to war at all. There are periods of friction, but they tend to be resolved without the use of force, or if force is used, even if there's a, a you know quite a major campaign, it lasts a year or two. And it's a small proportion of the time when they're actually coexisting quite well. And even, you know, it's very hard to know how much the wars actually interrupt the the large-scale trade that's going on all the time and another interchange. In the 6th century AD, you get more of a pattern of more frequent warfare, but it tends to be fought for limited objectives. So the Persians are nearly always begin by demanding money from the Romans. And one of the pretexts is, well, look, we're defending against these nomads that are pressing from either side of the Caspian Sea. If we don't stop them, they'll eventually get to your territory as well. So it's in your interest to pay us to help maintain frontier defenses, garrisons, things like that up there. And that's the, the reason given, though obviously there's an element where if you pay anybody in the ancient world, it's, it's perceived as tribute as a sign of submission. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it has to be presented very delicately for different audiences diplomatically. But the Romans resist this, but they often end up paying. When the Persians attack the Romans, which is whenever they perceive that the Romans seem fairly weak or they're too busy elsewhere, it's a limited objective war. You go in, you break through the sort of the hard crust around each empire is this row of frontier fortified cities mainly, but fortifications that are quite hard to take without a major siege, but you can bypass them. You can go internally and you can turn up outside a city and demand money if they don't want to be attacked. And most of the time they'll pay. Sometimes you have to besiege them. Sometimes you have to assault them. But on the whole, you can sort of wander around basically running a protection racket, sort of extorting money from them. They pay you to go away. Um, but you do always go away. You're never planning on taking territory. And this goes on, and each side will see its chances. You know, the Romans will often choose to start a war or prolong a war because they think the Persians are weak, and therefore this is a good opportunity. This is the time when you have, from the late 4th century, you go back to that sort of very old pattern of treaties with the ancient world where you fight wars, but you expect a negotiated settlement at the end that doesn't really make too much difference between the fundamental balance of power between the two of you. It's simply that whoever's gained the the immediate advantage in the war gets a bit more. They get a bit more money. Maybe they get a little bit of territory. Mostly it's about money and prestige. And you start declaring set periods of peace, which is an old Greek tradition. You know, you fight a war and you declare 10 years peace afterwards. Very rarely does that actually last. Usually somebody starts the war early or occasionally the, the, the peace goes on even longer. And it's, it's a mark of how much Roman attitude to warfare has changed that they're willing to end wars that way rather than um, expecting the sort of the total submission of the enemy, which had been their, their tradition in the early centuries. In At the end of the 6th century, you have a Persian civil war that leads to a, a Persian prince going off, being accepted, protected by the Romans, and then restored to power with Roman backing, with lots of Persian backing as well. But there are Roman troops, there's Roman money that pays for his uh, restoration of power. This king, Khusra II, then has his patron, the Roman Emperor Maurice, is murdered in a palace conspiracy. And it's, it's, it's very hard to tell. We would love to have the sort of detailed sources we occasionally get Procopius, for instance, for the wars of Justin and Justinian mm-hmm. in the 6th century, for this last great conflict. And although it's probably the most intensive period of fighting between the empires that ever happens, it's not well recorded. 
and means we have to guess at how it develops. Because at the beginning, the Persians protest. Now, is the Persian king of kings using this as an excuse? He's back to the usual thing. Well, I've just, you know, I've won a civil war, but I've done it with Roman backing. I need to make sure to prove to everybody in my kingdom that, you know, I'm not reliant on the Romans. I'm king of kings in my own right. You need to support me. Is he just seeing, well, the Romans are weak and using the the death of Morius, the death of his patron as an excuse, or is he genuinely upset by this and wants revenge for the man, you know, who's um, who's against the man who's murdered the man who helped him? He begins with demands that are quite similar to the sort of demands you've had before. And the war begins in the way that most of the other campaigns have begun, because you've got to break through this hard crust on the frontier to get into the the Roman Empire or conversely for the Romans to get into the Persian Empire. It's not very well described. What seems to happen is over several years, the Persians capture one fortified city after another on the borders and the Romans don't do anything to stop them or nothing effective to stop them, partly because the Romans are busy with a civil war um, because the emperor who's overthrown Morris is facing challenges of his own. And the Romans are too busy with that to organize a big enough army to go and deal with the Persians. It's not quite clear whether then at some point during these years, as the Persians keep on succeeding, as they start to take these cities and they don't just capture them, they either demolish them or they stay there. Permanent occupation of this territory. It's it's a, a difference to all these earlier campaigns of sort of go in, raid, plunder, extort money, and then go home again. Because they take this frontier area and this the sort of the crust of the Roman Empire is broken and it's permanently removed by the Persians, at which point the Persians start to get far more ambitious in their campaigns. And they campaign into Syria, they campaign into Palestine, eventually they'll campaign into Egypt, and they start taking territory. They don't just go to Antioch and raid it, they go and occupy it. They occupy Jerusalem. They turn up outside cities, and instead of saying, well, give us money to go away, they come to an arrangement that says, well, if the Romans don't come and relieve you within, say, a year or six months, you surrender to us. They start capturing and occupying most of the Roman provinces of the, the Mediterranean coast. And as I say, then they move around to Egypt and elsewhere. They're pushing into Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. They are occupying more and more of Armenia more permanently. That's that's a longer story that some um, probably can't go into because they've already taken parts of that. They push the Romans to the limit. And for the first time, you end up with Persian armies turning up the other side of the Bosporus, but within sight of Constantinople. And the Romans can't do much to stop them. The Persians ally with the Avars, one of these big groups that's come in from the Balkans. And they don't quite manage to join up. They can't get across the water. That final short stretch of water to get to physically join the Avars and assist in the siege, but they're there watching and waiting. And it's only at this time, this is the, the first occasion where you could say that the whether it was the Parthians or the Persians, actually look as if they're on the brink of destroying the Roman Empire, you know, and taking its capital, Constantinople, maybe a few fragments would survive in the West, but effectively, even this Eastern Empire, that's all that's left after the collapse of the, of the West in the 5th century, they might destroy that. They might conquer it. They might be a permanent resolution to this rivalry, to these successive wars. It doesn't quite happen. The Romans fight back under the Emperor Heraclius. They manage to lead these campaigns that start off as big raids into Persian territory, but gather momentum, are more successful, are pretty small scale. 
you know, these are not major wars by armies on the scale that someone like Julius Caesar or Pompey the Great or these earlier Roman commanders, or even emperors like Trajan would have commanded in earlier conflicts. But nevertheless, the Persians probably are overstretched and it collapses. You start to get rebellions within the Persian Empire against the king. He's overthrown. His son's overthrown. You end up with Persian civil war. You have a few brief periods in these years where someone who is not from the royal line becomes king of kings, albeit fairly briefly before they're murdered. And that's something. It's it's one of the the marks of success of the Arsacids and then the Sasanian royal family, that they've managed to convince everyone that you can only be king of kings if you have royal blood, if you are part of that line. The problem always being that as they tend to take several wives, lots of concubines, and kings tend to father a lot of sons, there are usually lots of people of the royal line. So the, the competition within the royal line is pretty vicious and pretty savage and common, but it doesn't expand to your wider nobility. That's starting to happen. There's this breakdown. The, the problem is the sources are so poor. We suddenly have, in the years immediately, a few years after this, this war's been resolved, particularly in the year uh, um, 636, you have uh, Arab armies that appear and defeat both the Romans and the Sasanian Persians. The Sasanian Persian Empire collapses altogether um, within a, a matter of a few years, and... What seems to happen is that many of the aristocratic families in central and eastern Iran just switch sides, as they've done before from the Arsacid Parthians to the Sasanian Persians, and probably quite possibly before that as well. So you get traditions of these sort of clan leaders in certain areas that last well into the medieval Arab period. Um, and it does look as if you know there's there's a lot of skill and subtle diplomacy by the arab leaders as well that they're accepting that yeah people have changed sides we're not going to press them too much in religious terms for the moment you know let's just keep it all um superficially fine but we're not going to worry too much about what they're doing as long as they back us as long as they accept our rule in the case of the romans the arab armies will overrun virtually all the same areas that the persians had overrun just a few years before syria palestine egypt Later, they'll go on and they'll continue along the North African coast. And of course, by the end of the century, they'll be pushing into Spain. There seems to be an element. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to pin down because we don't have the good sources. And the tendency is, the simple answer is, well, the Persians and the Romans have fought each other to exhaustion. Along come the Arabs, and they're simply too weak to resist this new enemy. And there's probably some truth in that, but it, it's unlikely to be the whole story. I mean, there's an interesting difference in that in the, the Great War with Persia, the Emperor Heraclius has gone around starting to tell his men that if you die in battle against the Persians, then you'll effectively die, have died a martyr's death. You will go to heaven. That would be guaranteed. He doesn't say that when his armies are fighting the Arabs. And it's almost as if the Romans don't take the Arabs very seriously at first, because there have been Arab raiders before. They've come, they've gone, they've been a bit nasty, but they've gone home. They've not been organized. It's also that sense of, you know, we're used to this major ideological and religious rivalry between Islam and Judaism and Christianity. At the time, at this early stage, these are all monotheists that are, in, in a sense, more like the Christian Romans, as far as they're concerned, than the Zoroastrian Persians are. They're less of an enemy, less of a danger. So there may be an element where the Romans aren't taking it seriously. It would be nice to have greater 
information. The, the Persian armies do collapse quickly, but again, it may be a political thing that this is a time when the Persians are busy fighting civil wars. Twice you have um, female rulers for the, the Persian Empire in this time because you've run out of proper male heirs. You've basically killed them all off in the civil war. And two daughters of the old king become... It's a little bit vague. One of them only has coins that are clearly a you know a male head that's just struck over with her name. One of them is actually depicted, but they are very briefly queens who are queens of kings, you know, who rule this whole empire. But the empire is small, and it's divided. The other thing I think we've, we've always should be fair to say is that you know it's, it's it's always tempting to look at why does this power lose. Sometimes you've also got to remember why does an, another power win. The Arab armies and the Arab leaders are doing something right in this period, and they're pretty good at fighting and they're pretty good at diplomacy because they don't seem to have excessive numbers. There's no impression, you know, this isn't a great horde that suddenly appears and just swamps everybody. These are relatively small armies on a similar scale to the sort of armies we've had in these these recent wars between Rome and Persia. Um, so as I say, I think they're they're doing a lot that's right as well. They're doing a lot that's successful. They're clever in the way they fight, in the way they negotiate. So, again, there isn't one simple answer. Whilst it's tempting to see exhaustion as the key cause, there's probably a lot more to it than that. Um, so kind of throughout this conversation, I've been applying, you know, modern day concepts to to this, to this period, you know, superpower relations, balance of power, international system, Cold War. Um, but I want to kind of flip things uh, for this last question and kind of take lessons from this period of time um, and apply them to today, which is something that that I think you you, you gesture at in your book, kind of um, using the seven centuries of like the 700 year long relationship as like a model for how we might understand things today. Um, so I guess what, what are some of those? Lessons? What are some of the lessons or patterns that, that you see in the relationship between Rome and Parthia, Rome and Persia, um, and how are they relevant to how we understand conflict, diplomatic relations today? Well, obviously, it would be naive to say, oh, you know, the situation in the 350s AD or the 7th century or whatever, exactly the same as today. Yes, if we do what the Persians did, if we do what the Romans did, or we do the opposite to what they did, we'll succeed where they failed or, you know, whatever. I think it's partly... There is a tendency, particularly in strategic analysis and military analysis, to focus very much on 20th century, early 21st century, to the exclusion of the rest of history. And the dominance of the world wars and then the cold wars tends to affect our thinking. Now, obviously, there are major changes in populations, economy, technology, all this sort of thing that means that rivalries will be conducted today and in the last century or so in ways that weren't possible before. However, the pattern of human history is actually of wars being rarely that decisive and at varying varying levels of frequency. But the same states, or if you go back to sort of pre-state society, the same tribes, the same smaller groupings tend to fight the same enemies generation after generation. Not necessarily every generation, but they, they fight in the same sort of places over the same sort of things, and the balance of power goes a little bit one way and a little bit the other way. But it doesn't... We tend to think of particularly the Second World War situation where you fight and the the Allies will fight to the 
complete destruction of two political systems, National Socialist Germany and Imperial Japan, and the replacement of those states with something profoundly different, um, both politically, but also economically and, and, and socially. And there is a great tendency to think of that as normal, because we go back again and again to looking at these these eras um, for very good reasons. But that's not all of human history. If you look at the rivalry between the Romans and the Parthians and then the Persians, obviously, the whole point of the book is to say, well, it lasts a very, very long time. And one theme of the book is that the campaigns that do develop are fought again and again in the same areas. And that's partly because these are the natural routes along which armies can move, but also these are the places where there are things worth fighting over. Um, but you have the situation of Armenia. You know, it's between these two empires, therefore it's a hot potato all the time. It's always a problem. It's a problem for the Armenian rulers. It's a problem for each of the empires. One that various attempts to resolve at each at different stages, each one tries to occupy it, directly rule it, that doesn't tend to work. It doesn't solve the problem. There's, there is, the Armenian problem seems insoluble in a permanent sense. But when these two very powerful, very military sophisticated empires fight each other, they tend to do it with deliberate self-imposed restraint. You know, they don't fight major wars. They are one of the most striking things. The big difference between the last war with that culminates in Heraclius's victory, but with Khosrow II, is that the Persians stopped negotiating. If you look at every other conflict that's been fought before, then several times each year, in the middle of campaigning, they talk to each other. And there's this sort of sense of, well, can we do a deal? Okay, maybe we can't yet. I think I can do better than the situation now. So the war goes on. But they talk a lot. When they stop talking, the wars become a lot more serious. So it does provide us with, with case studies in a sense of how that interrelationship between diplomacy and um, warfare, but also how limited war is actually very common in human history. And a lot of the limits are deliberately imposed, quite consciously imposed. You know, in the case of these two empires, they know how to conquer people, but they've decided they're not going to try. And that still doesn't mean they can live permanently peacefully with each other. There's still this emphasis on to re remain who we are, to remain um, an imperial power. We need to assert our strength. We need to be, perceive ourselves as strong, but we also need others in the wider world, particularly rivals, great or small, to perceive us as sufficiently strong that we have to be treated with respect. There are elements of that that are still just as true today in that, yes, we tend to, we can reduce everything to, well, what's, you know, the, the direct economic advantage for a state to do this, control these resources, do whatever, you know, what's the, but there is an element as well where the perception matters of, and that works at different levels. It's the self-perception of a particular power of particular leaders. It's the perception of their home communities, particularly the most politically significant parts of those, depending on, you know, what the system's like, but also of everybody else around them. Um, and, you know, I, uh, in the introduction, I, I talk a little bit because obviously you can't ignore the fact you're writing military history at a time when I was writing this two years ago. Um, there is a major large scale war in Europe, which hasn't happened since the, the break of the former Yugoslavia. And politically, that seems to have been forgotten and was, was different in nature. Um, but nevertheless, you've got a large scale war being fought and ongoing. And that was a bit of a shock to 
a lot of opinions that seem to see this as something that belonged to the past and been relegated to the past and couldn't happen, and that you can deal with other powers always on the basis that, well, nobody's actually going to resort to violence, nobody's going to fight, and that you don't, you know, the... Um, the disarmament of Western Europe has been a, a profound feature. And I remember when I was a student, we had um, Berlin Wall coming down the end of the Cold War. And, you know, immediately in Britain, you would see successive defense cuts. And some of them were coming in when I was in the OTC at Oxford. And you, you'd just see this. And there was the perception that, right, well, we don't need to spend that anymore because everything's going to be fine now. There is an aspect in human behavior that whether you have large empires or whether you have lots of small rival states, Conflict remains a possibility. I mean, that's perhaps rather bland to say, but it people can forget that they can consider every 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 generation, every state, every group within a state or society tends to think of their own circumstances as normal and natural and deserved. And you have that parallel where you know if the Romans and the Persians become very similar, and particularly in later antiquity, each sees itself as the sort of the the best that's on offer in 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 the world we are the center of the world we are the most advanced the most civilized the most religiously pure the society that is based upon the rule of law but good law that is enforced by the guidance of an emperor or a king of kings and they each think of the other empire as a sort of a step down from us but similar you know they're trying their best but they don't quite have the right religion their laws aren't quite as good their king or their emperor isn't quite as good as ours but they see each other as again they place themselves naturally at the top of the pyramid but the next one the the empire is the next one down but beyond that is a wider world of far more confused little states that are not civilized that are more barbarian to use that term than the other empire the other empire is a sort of midway point these are natural human ways of thinking about ourselves and it, it's it doesn't mean we're going to change them but an awareness of that sometimes makes it easier to understand the thinking of real and potential rivals, but also real and potential allies. Because again, one of the points of the book was to emphasize the role played by all these much smaller powers and leaders that are caught up in this. And they are not mere puppets, and they are not mere simply pro or anti. They are ambitious individuals in their own right. And they might, you know, they'll probably be aware that Yes, compared to the Roman Empire, I'm king of Armenia. I can't match the, the might of the Roman Empire. I can't match the might of Persia. But on the other hand, I'm not going to fight the entire might of either of those empires. And I can always play one off against the other. You know, that perception is, however strong the superpower might be, it has lots of other commitments. And people in individual areas can think, well, we can do this. We can push them so far because they're going to be busy elsewhere. They're not going to worry about this and we can do a deal. We can sort it all out later. So it's, uh, that was one of the, the themes was a, the restraint of the empires themselves, the self-imposed restraint that was an acknowledgement of the other's power, but also the role played by all these other players within the game. And I think that's, these are useful lessons. Again, it's not just study this. This is the only book you ever need to read and you will understand the modern world because obviously that's ridiculous. But the broader your experience, the broader your knowledge of wider human history, I think it allows you to consider the possibilities. There is a, a tendency we just assume that rivals are exactly like us, and therefore they will think in the way that we consider to be logical for them. And that just doesn't work, at least all the time. Well, 
I think with that <laughs> lesson in mind, <laughs> thank you for listening oh, yes. to an interview with Adrian Goldsworthy, author of Roman Persia, The 700-Year Rivalry. Adrian, I actually have two final questions for you to kind of wrap things up. Uh, first of all, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And I know you're you're a very prolific, a uh, very prolific writer. Um, and I guess extending that portfolio, uh, what do you think the next project might be? Well, um, you can go to obviously they'll be available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that sort of thing. Um, there's my website, adriangoldswithy.com. I've started a YouTube channel where I talk about the books and other themes related to them, which is, uh, I think it's Adrian Goldsworthy, a historian and author, but I can't quite remember. But if you search for something like that, it should turn up. Um, the next book is going, in a funny sort of way, before I wrote this book, I wrote a book on Philip II and his son, Alexander the Great. Because lots of people write about Alexander, and obviously the conquest of Persia is famous, but that happened that was made possible because of the things that the father had done and we forget the father but actually his life's in many ways almost as interesting and challenging this book came from that because obviously you look at alexander and he does carve through the Achaemenid persian empire and conquer it in a matter of just a few years the romans talk about alexander anytime any roman general or caesar looks even vaguely eastwards then the poets and propagandists start talking about alexander and you know the roman armies will be off to, to india next and all this sort of thing that never actually happens so there was a logic in a sense of looking at what did follow because the greeks and the romans were made aware of the extent of the persian empire by alexander but they never tried to take it again or at least after the seleucids have fallen so this book followed on in part from a sense of, okay, so what does happen? And then I realized that I'd looked at different aspects of the um, Roman conflict, Roman struggles with the Parthians, with the Persians, but that nobody had actually looked at it all. And I thought, well, there's, there might be some lessons to learn from that. And the, the patterns that emerged surprised me. It wasn't what I was expecting. So that one followed on from that book. In a sense, what I'm doing next also follows on in that this is looking at before Philip II and Alexander. Because while I was writing that book, I wanted a good overview of Greek history in particularly the 5th century BC, um, but a little bit before and a little bit afterwards, how we got to the world that Philip II and then Alexander changed so profoundly. And people write books about Athens and Sparta, and they write books about the wars with Persia, and they write books about the Peloponnesian War. But what I'm trying to do now is a book that covers all of them and explains this Greek experiment in different forms of government, how these different Greek cities tried to organize themselves in such a way and how the rivalries developed between them, why some succeeded and others didn't. And within that, to tell the wider story of Greek history and Greek culture as it develops in that period that is so fundamental to Roman history later on, but more generally, the Greco-Roman influence on, on Western culture. So it's going to a shorter period. This will only be a, it could, it'll be more than a century, but covering about 150 years or so, roughly. Um, and looking at a much more focused area in predominantly Greece and the islands, but of course, because you've got Greek communities in Sicily and Spain and the Black Sea, how that all spreads. And the, the great irony, because of course, the, the odd story of this is that the heroic moment for the Spartans, for the Athenians, for a number of Greek states is when they join together and they defeat the Persians at Salamis and at Plataea and before that at Marathon. You know, the Persian invasion, great army of Herodotus claiming a million men comes to attack us. We stand up against it and we beat them. 
And that's that's what makes us so heroic. That makes us deserve, you know, we've won because we are freer, we have better societies than everyone else. The great irony is that by the time of the Peloponnesian War, both Athens and Sparta are desperate to get Persian money to fight against other Greeks. And the friends they'd had in those old days are now their rivals, and they're accepting this. And this, this will be the pattern that follows and dominates into the fourth century. So how you get from that, this you know, the heroism of standing up to Persia and Xerxes and before that Darius, to suddenly actually thinking of the Persians no longer as a threat, but as a very useful cash cow and a source of money and a source of aid against your Greek rivals. Because again, they're the people that really bother you rather than this distant empire. So that's the that's the story of the next book, which will be called Athens and Sparta, A Tale of Two Cities. But I've got to write it first. Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews in the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Joshua Ehrlich, author of The East India Company and The Politics of Knowledge. But before then, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.